Hi, this is Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher and life coach. I'm also author of several self-help books. We have Larry Kasanoff, a legendary movie producer who knows firsthand that massive success requires taking big risks. He has a new book titled A Touch of Madness, How to Be More Innovative in Work and Life by Being a Little Crazy. He also makes movies like Platoon, Terminator 2, True Lies, and Mortal Kombat, as well as animated movies like Lego Star Wars and theme park rides like Marvel Superheroes 4D and The Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man. Today, he will talk to us about true innovation and what it means to fully and fearlessly pursue your vision. Larry also went to Cornell and later Wharton Business School, and we are fortunate to hear his wisdom today. So thanks, Larry, for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your background and how you started making movies. From a very early age, my father took me to see a James Bond movie when I was a little kid, and I left and I said, okay, Dad, two things. I want to be that guy, James Bond, but also, who's the guy that says, Produced by Covey Broccoli Production. What does that guy do? And my father explained what a movie producer was, and that was it. From then on through to today, that's all I wanted to be was a movie producer. That's hilarious. And, yeah, and so I, I planned it. My parents were wonderfully supportive, but we didn't have any money or any connections. We grew up in Boston. There's a school in Boston. It's the oldest high school in the country. Benjamin Franklin went there. Oh, and yeah. it's, an, it's an unusual school called Boston Land School. It's like a private school, but if you do well on a test, you can get in and go for free. That's what happened, and it was terrible. It was like going to school in the 1800s. It was really classical and strict, which is not me, but it gets <laughs> you into a good school. And I thought if I get into good schools like Cornell and Wharton, I'll just take internships and I'll just somehow meet people, and that's what happened. I had an internship at Wharton uh, at HBO, and through HBO, I met this great entrepreneur who started a new independent film studio. This was in the mid-'80s when home video was taking off. So home video in those days was like streaming today. In other words, it was a business that didn't exist. Then all these video stores blew up and they needed movies. And so my first job, I was head of production, co-productions and acquisitions for this company called Vestron. And my job was to deliver 80 movies a year to the company, 80, 80, which was crazy. But they were all low budget movies. And, and they said, make them, buy them, co-produce them. We don't care how you get them. Don't lose money. That was my marching orders for my boss. <laughs> and so we, we made animated, we made horror movies and action movies and rom-coms and typical genre, high concept kind of projects. But uh -huh. then we got a script for a movie called Platoon. And Platoon was not one of those projects. It was a very serious script about the Vietnam War and its effects on the kids who went the tagline for the movie was the first casualty of war is innocence. My boss said, you're crazy. These people aren't stars. They weren't, but they later became stars. The mm -hmm. director, Oliver Stone, was great. We had done one of his previous movies called Platoon. I mean, called, we had done one of his previous movies called Salvador, which was great, but wasn't a hit. But I fought for it. I just had an instinct. And my boss, to his credit, said, okay, you're the head of production. It's your decision. But, there's always a but, if you fail, if the movie fails, you're fired. What do you want to do? And he fired people left and right. It was no bluff. <laughs> and so I had no idea, but I thought I didn't get into the movie business to play it safe. So I took the shot and I greenlit Platoon. Wow. And I saw the first cut of the movie months later. I was actually in Italy when they showed it to me. I'm the only person to giggle their way through the first screening of Platoon. Not because it wasn't wonderful, because I thought, oh my God, it is wonderful. I'm not getting fired. I'm not getting fired. <laughs> 
<laughs> and in fact, the movie was so wonderful, it won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. Wow. A few months later, I ran into the director at a bar in New York, and he bought me a drink, and he said, Kid, I always liked you. You have a touch of the madness. And I thought, a touch of the madness? What the hell is that? Is he saying I'm crazy? Am I crazy? And then it occurred to me, my boss had a touch of the madness for giving a 25-year-old kid the responsibility of running an 80-picture film slate with no prior experience. Right. Oliver had a touch of the madness by making a Vietnam movie and insisting on doing it in a way no one had. And I had a touch of the madness by betting the best job in the world right when I got it on this one movie. And yeah. so then it occurred to me that this is a phrase I love. This is my touchstone. This is going to be my philosophy, which is innovation or creativity demands a touch of the madness. And the reason that's important, all these things that people throw around like creativity and innovation, right. is because the river of life will always pull you towards the middle. It'll always try and pull you towards complacency. Every one of us all the time, it tries to do that. Right. And the problem with that is if you do it, you will be eclipsed by companies or other artists or other creatives who don't do it because the audience doesn't want the tried and the true. They want the new and the different. Right. And the best way to have the new and the different is to swim against that current using creativity. And the best way to be creative is by being a little crazy, or as I call it, having a touch of the madness. So that has been my touchstone throughout my entire career and continues to be. I always thought when I called someone crazy, it was a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I think it is, too. <laughs> it is. I'm like, I want to be around that person a little more. She's yeah, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to explain to people, it is a compliment, and go for it. And I, I think people now are a little afraid to really be their unbridled, passionate, creative self. And if there's anything I, I hope maybe I could accomplish in the book, it's to inspire people to do just that. Right. And I say that. It is. A, my sister-in-law... Thought I was crazy for the first, I don't know, 10 years she was married to my brother. Lots of people think I'm crazy. I don't care. I like it. <laughs> well, everyone's fighting to sit next to you at Thanksgiving, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What made you write this book? You sound like you're naturally bold and fearless, but were you just born naturally bold and fearless, or did you develop this? I, I think I was b born pretty bold. I certainly was a kid who was always cracking jokes and talking back in school and I was always fighting for what I want. But I also had, as I said, wonderfully supportive parents and aunts and uncles who were strict and they had no misgivings that I was any kind of an angel. But they were just wonderfully supportive in whatever my brother and I wanted to do and taught us if we really worked hard and, and, and believed in ourselves, we could do anything. So I think I always felt that. As I said, when I had that, that real turning point with Platoon, where I really did bet my early career on it, Mm -hmm. I realized this is what you have to do. And more and more, as I have been in the film business and other businesses, I, I keep learning the same thing, that you just have to persevere. You have to keep going and going and going and going. Mm -hmm. And you have to be bold. And you, it, it, is, it does become like a muscle. One of the things I always encourage people to do, and I talk about it in the book a lot, is ask. Ask anybody anything all the time, always, for what you want. Mm -hmm. And, you, and I, I learned that early on, and I had a great professor in college who taught me that. And so from early in college, I, would, I was calling CEOs of companies if I wanted, if I had a question. And a lot of them called me back. Not all of them, but a lot of them called me back. Right. And I think you have to develop that skill. And so what made me write the book is, as I said, I just started realizing I think people are so scared to be their unbridled creative self. And that's not good for them. It's not good mm -hmm. for the world. And it doesn't have to be in the movie business, in any business. People are just fearful of taking that shot. What if I offend somebody? What if I fail? What if my right. whoever, mother, brother, and, father, sister, husband doesn't like it? Right. 
you got to go for it. I think people are afraid of the rejection. That's why they don't ask. Because instead of thinking no is the beginning, right? Yeah, no is only the beginning. Right. So I always say to people, you're in a little different position. I'll ask you because of what you do. But I always say to people, if you could call one person alive in the world today, right now, and ask them one question, who would you call and what would you ask? Interesting. I would call Elon Musk and ask him why it was so important for him to buy Twitter so have you called him to ask that question? No. Why not? And the reason why not is because people don't assume they can. It just doesn't occur to them. Right. But you can. Yeah. And you can. So maybe you're you're a podcaster, so you're used to calling people. But uh, imagine you want to do something like that. And that's too big a first step. Maybe you want to call your Uncle Sam and ask him why he didn't come to Thanksgiving. There's a million ways you can start that. Here's an example. So during the pandemic, we made an animated movie called Bobbleheads, big little characters with big bobbling heads. Right. And we wanted Cher to be in it, the famous iconic Cher. And we wanted to use her likeness, too, not just her voice. We wanted her to play Bobblehead Cher. So we (laughs) called. And and we called and called. And she finally agreed. And she was incredible in it. And she was wonderful, as always. Right. And when the movie came out, People Magazine said to her, Cher, you've never done an animated movie. Why did you say yes to this one? And she said, I've never done an animated movie because no one ever asked me before. I did. So can you imagine if Cher, literally probably the most famous woman on the planet, is is sitting there and no one had asked her, who in your life, you're not calling because you think, oh, I can't do that. They get asked all the time. And and Cher didn't get asked. So you never know. No, it's, it's really good advice. It's true. You always think, oh, they'll be too busy for me or... Whatever, right. but I'm going to call Elon and get him on the podcast. You, you should. <laughs> it's a good question. The other thing, too, is I made a lot of movies at this point, and I'm very grateful for mm-hmm. the success of some of them. But people say no to me all the time. It, it still happens. Right. And it happens a lot. I'm trying to get the Pope to do something. <laughs> we're getting these, the Pope, but we're getting these lovely past letters from the Vatican on lovely stationery, but we keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us um, what the essence of an idea means. Like, once you have an idea, how not to give up. You shared the secret um, in Mortal Kombat Dirty Dancing. So the first thing you have to do is create your idea. The first thing I say, create, ask, play. That's how you have a touch of the madness. That's how you'd be really innovative. So create your idea. Mm-hmm. There's a few steps to that. You have to understand your audience because we all work for the audience or our customers. You have to understand the essence of idea, meaning why does something work? So when I started Mortal Kombat, everyone told me, once again, my career would be over. No one had ever made a hit movie from a video game. They all failed. And they told me not to do it. But I never thought I was making a hit movie from a video game. I thought I was making a hit movie, hoped to be a hit movie, from the essence of that game. The essence meaning why was Mortal Kombat such a successful game? What was the essence of it? Because you can't translate a game. You can only translate what it's based on. In my mind, Mortal Kombat was always based on empowerment. Martial arts teaches you don't have to be the biggest kid on the block or the biggest guy to win. You just have to focus and study and do the right thing. Right. So once you say, okay, that's what we're going to infuse in it, you realize that's the top of your intellectual property pyramid. And then the video game is one down, and then on another rung is a movie and our TV shows and animation. We're, we make 20 Mortal Kombat projects in 20-something mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And so you, ha- you know the essence of it. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is once you come up with your idea, you've got to hold on tight. You've got to never, ever let go because that current of the river is going to try and dissuade you. Right. So in Dirty Dancing, when we started Dirty Dancing, it had already been started and then abandoned by another studio. 
No one really cared about it. It was languishing. We bought the script from that studio and started the movie, and it wasn't going well. And we managed to lure in two amazing people, Jimmy Einer, who's still actually my partner in my company today, and Michael Lloyd, who was then and is still our, our music supervisor and composer on all our projects. Mm-hmm. And they were musical legends at the time, let alone now. And once they got involved, I knew the movie would be okay. And the first thing they did is the song, Time of My Life, the most famous song, which was not originally what you hear. It was a very high falsetto disco-y song. And Jimmy and Michael wanted to make it lower and different. And so they got, as a favor, no one wanted to sing it, Bill Medley from the old group called The Righteous Brothers to sing it. And they sent a copy of the song to everyone involved, the director of the movie, the record company, the management of the artists, and so forth. And no one liked it. Everyone sent back comments. You got to change it. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to make changes. We don't like it. That's all they got. And they said to everyone, sure, no problem. We've we'll, we got your notes. We'll make the changes. Three weeks later, they sent out version two and they sent it with a note saying, we send this version to some radio stations. In those days, radio stations helped you promote an album a lot. Yep. And the radio stations seemed to like it. And the notes they got back were, thank you so much. Version two is great. Thanks for doing our notes. We really appreciate it. This is fantastic. So the question is, what musical bit of genius did Jimmy and Michael apply to version one so they would love version two? What did they change? And the answer to what they changed to make version two the better version is nothing. They didn't change a thing. They just changed the label. They just wrote version two. And in fact, <laughs> they doubled down because what they did was when people said, we don't like it, they didn't stop sending it out. They sent it to more people. In this case, radio stations, which is a real risk because... They're the public, and so they're the conduit to the public. Right. They knew what they had. And right. as soon as the other people got the notes saying the radio stations liked it, they immediately thought it must be different, and they liked it. But Jimmy and Michael knew what they had, right. and they didn't change a thing. And that song that won Grammy of the Year for Best Song, and it won the Academy Award for Best Song. Had they changed it, we wouldn't be talking about this today. Isn't that amazing? That yep. really is a great story and example. You, you can... You can't make everybody happy, but if you believe in something, you can. You gotta yeah. believe in your. The first step to creating is the hardest thing. Is you gotta believe in your idea because everyone is going to tell you it's too bold, it's not right, it's too crazy. No, if you believe in it, don't let it go. And you talked about trends too. How that one company had come to you and they kept saying, "Oh, we want to do this idea," and you asked why, and they said, "Because it's the next hot idea. Everyone's doing it." That's my point about technology. I think technology is great. I've been fortunate and been in the nexus of a lot of um, technology and entertainment areas in the movie business, on video, um, digital uh, technology, uh, 3D technology. But it works to help you accomplish your goal. So, for example, if I want to tell a story and then I need technology to sell it, it's great. So our first theme park ride was a Star Trek ride. And we wanted to have in 3D, stereoscopic 3D glasses, we wanted to show people what it would be like to walk through a Borg cube in space. If you don't know Star Trek, the Borgs are the chief bad guys, and they float around in space in these evil kind of cubes. But the problem was there, there were no 3D cameras in those days that moved. It, it just didn't exist. All 3D cameras were stationary. There's a lot of technical reasons for that. And nevertheless, we pitched the idea to Paramount on Star Trek. We sold it to them. They said yes, but we didn't have a camera. So now we needed the technology. <laughs> So we teamed up with a great technology camera company and we invented the first ever cut steady cam, moving 3D camera. And the ride was a huge hit and that helped start what it became a 3D craze for a while. And in that context, 
uh, network came to us, a studio, and said, we're going to start a new 3D network. And we said, can you help us? Can you make content? We said, sure. What do you want? They said, we don't know. We said, "Why? who's your audience? Got to know your audience. And they said, we don't know. And they said, why are you doing it? And they said, what's the hot thing? They were gone in six months. You have to use technology to implement your idea, not the other way around, not opportunistically say, boy, they're, 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 this gizmo works. What can I do with this gizmo? If you chase the new hot thing, you'll probably fail. If right. you say, I'm going to use it for something, you'll succeed. Yeah. Interesting. Talk about how to create, ask, and play. What do you mean by making play work for you? So, so I believe that the more we can infuse into our work lives and our creative lives a state of play, that literally your mind is more open, you're having more fun, you're more relaxed, and, and you'll do things well, and, versus a non-state of play. So the first movie I was ever involved in I, it would already been greenlit before I got to the company was new. But it's a low budget. We call it today a low budget Game of Thrones. And it was going to be made in Italy. And it was my first movie. And the, the head of the company, my boss, had said to us, we want violence and sword bikes and magic and sword and sorcery and sex and, and love and you name it, everything. <laughs> and just everything in the kitchen sink. And mm -hmm. my staff in L.A., we started thinking we, we loved it. And then we said as a joke, at the end of that, he said, and snakes and wizards. And we, we thought snakes and wizards was great. So whenever we talked to the producer and the, uh, the people in Italy prepping the movie, we would end every conversation by saying, and remember, snakes and wizards. And they said, <laughs> snakes and wizards. And it was just a rallying cry because it was like it was a fun almost right. example of what the company wanted in the movie. Right. So I get to the set, and now it's lovely. I've never been really on a movie set before, and it's and they're treating me great, and we're in Italy, and we have wine with lunch, and I'm realizing, wow, this is fun, and they were fun people. And then they told me one day they have a surprise for me. And they were all very excited, the whole crew, and they take me out back, and they're all standing around. I have no idea what's going on. And we're looking at the hills of Rome in the distance, and then I see a little speck, and the speck is growing, and it's dust, and it's a truck. And then as the truck gets closer and closer, they form a semicircle around me. And then there's a band. I don't know where they got a band. <laughs> and then the truck backs up, and I see, like, circus markings on it. I'm like, what? <laughs> and the door opens of the truck, and out pour all these people dressed beautifully as all kinds of wizards with huge snakes around their neck. Bullock and circus <laughs> and Fermi's python. And they all applauded, and they said, snakes and wizards. It was a joke. There were no snakes and wizards in the movie. He just forgot to tell the producer it was a joke. So, he thought he was doing great. So, in a, and I'm thinking, that I was like, in my first movie, I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? And clearly, these people have gone through a lot of trouble. God knows where they found all these snake charmers in Rome. And <laughs> in a not state of play, I would have maybe been mad or panicked or yeah. sent them all home. And they, in a state of play, on a lovely day in spring in the Italian, in, in Rome, drinking wine at lunch, I looked at them and I said, let's put them all in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> which we did now, oh god in all honesty the movie's terrible but but it made a fortune oh <laughs> great it turned out it was right snakes and wizards work right. but in a state of play only can you do something like that and realize this is great when we were making our first mortal Kombat movie part we were on we we're in gorgeous island of Kirby in southern thailand just tropical paradise and we needed what's called a b-roll and a kind of an establishing shot of the water in an island and we needed a, a certain kind of boat to get it and the only boat around that we could find that was capable of handling a camera crew and was stable enough to do it was a yacht at the Amman hotel 
in Phuket, and the Amman hotels are a series of incredible hotels. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, it was going to be as the producer, my job to go supervise this crew and spend three days on the yacht. <laughs> <laughs> Sucks to be <laughs> here. Exactly, in the end of the sea. And for a minute, I thought, well, can I do this? this and I thought, what do you mean, can I do this? This is my job. The fact that it happens to be in a yacht and it happens to be fun, why not infuse that into the movie? And you know what? We had a great three days. We got the shot. It was absolutely efficient. We came in on budget to the penny. And it, it was fantastic. But you realize, why not? And the crew had such a great time. And we kept doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Did the crew work extra? And we had such a camaraderie. And the movie was a huge hit. So your mind will tell you a little bit, play at work, play doing this. I can't do that. But yeah, you can. And in yeah. fact, it will help. No, you fun, should Fun is wildly underrated these days. I totally agree. I see people like dreading going to their job. And I'm like, either make it fun or get out. Yeah, but in general, fun is wildly underrated. We've gotten too... I don't know. It's weird. I think I think my mission in life is to bring fun back. Because it's like overachieving mentality is taking over people's minds, I think. But I loved your parallel about play by learning from dogs. And you had said in the book, which <laughs> is amazing... How avalanche rescue dogs who save lives think they're actually playing. And I yeah, thought that's, that's such true. a great analogy. Yeah, they, have, they absolutely think they play. I have a white lab who is like a rock star. He believes every time he walks into a room, everyone loves him. And, <laughs> and he, all he does is play. And I thought, what a great way to go through life, believing everyone loves you and everything's a game. Totally. But he's, he's the happiest guy I know. <laughs> so he, he, and it is a fun way to live. And I do think it's important to enjoy your life. But mm-hmm. it does make you better in the creative world. Right. And anything creative, it doesn't have to be a movie. It can be a product development for Procter & Gamble. It makes you more open to ideas, and you'll see things you wouldn't otherwise see. So I'm a huge advocate of infusing play into it. There's, there's a million of these stories. In, in the days, in the early days of Esther, when we were making all those low-budget genre movies, mm-hmm. we had this great producer from uh, Greece. We had this great producer from Greece who was like a Zorba the Greek, if you know that reference. And he mm-hmm. was a genius at getting a good look on the screen. And he came to me one day and he said, you know, it'd be a great movie. It'd be a great movie to have a, a beach party in, in a Malibu mansion full of like DJs and musicians and all kinds of people. And, and everyone would be young and gorgeous. And I thought, that's a great idea. How are we going to do that? He goes, easy. You're going to give me money to make the movie. And I'm going to take the entire budget and I'm going to rent a mansion on the beach in Malibu for the summer. And I'm going to stock it full of DJs and gorgeous people and musicians and chefs. And I'll just shoot the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, yeah, I thought, well, this is crazy. But again, that's what we did. You I, did not. I, we did. Oh. I, say, I spent a lot of time there that summer. And it came uh-huh. out great. We made a lot of money. So in other words, why not enjoy yourself? Why not do something fun? Yeah. Most animated movies, certainly the way we make them, because you get these great comedians and these great people. If you create in the sound recording, if you create a fun spirit of play, half the lines are improvised there in the spot because everyone's having such a good time and you're working with those incredibly talented people. They're relaxed and they feel comfortable to do it. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. If you make people feel comfortable, which play does, they'll be more creative. Uh-huh. My daughter was in a movie, but she was like background person. I was with Chris Rock and Adam Sandler and one other comedian. And she said every day they made it a contest to see who was the funniest. And so everyone was having a great time. And everyone's having a blast. It takes the stress out and the movie just was effortless. Yep. That's exactly right. What I really tried to do is this is not a book 
tell-all book about Hollywood. Right. This is a, a book that tries to encourage and inspire people to be creative, and I try and do it in a fun way. I'm advocating play, and I use these stories, like the one about Dirty Dancing or Platoon or Mortal Kombat. I use these stories to illustrate the point, and it mm-hmm. isn't a tell-all, but in all these stories and in all the stuff we did on on Terminator 2, we wanted to make a music video, and in those days, music videos were playing MTV for sometimes 15 times a day, and we really help you promote a movie. It's a huge, long story, but we asked Arnold if he would do it. He was not contractually obligated. He was incredibly great about all these things, and good lesson. He said, if you get the best band in the world, I'll do it. I said, who's the best band in the world? He said, he called his brother-in-law who was in the music business. His brother-in-law said, he goes, Arnold looked at me, he said, Guns N' Roses. And I said, no problem. I didn't know Guns N' Roses. But they were <laughs> the biggest band in the world. And long story short, by asking and asking and asking and asking, we got Guns N' Roses in the movie. We did a music video with Arnold and the, a lot of footage from the movie. And we came up with a story of the Terminator is hunting Guns N' Roses and a funny ending. And it, it became, he won a fan contest as video of the year on MTV that year. But, but it, it, it's all a story of... People, again, uniting together in a creatively outlandish cause. The studio told me in the beginning, there's no way you'll do it. Guns N' Roses won't say yes. Arnold won't say yes. It costs too much money. I went, and I just kept doing it. I, in fact, I got everyone, and I said, oh, I'm going to need a million dollars. And the studio said, no way. I just went ahead anyway, and I got everyone involved, and I got the record company to do it, and everyone else to agree to it. The director, Arnold, everyone agreed to it. And I still didn't have the money. And then I went back to the studio and said, these guys are all in. But I gambled. And they said, yeah. It, yeah. It's just everything I'm saying is just story after story. Yeah. If you really do it, 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 it does work out. Now, it doesn't always work out. But so what? Right. I don't really remember the times it didn't work out. It's like being a quarterback in a for a football team. The next week is a new game and a new series of plays. And you just go and play it again. So the stories that I tell in the book, like the ones I'm telling now, are all to illustrate these points. Create, ask, play, mm-hmm. never give up. I'm at the point now where if I pitch a theme park ride or a movie and people say to me, what a fantastic idea, that's a no-brainer. I get a little nervous. But if they say, oh, you're crazy, Larry, what are you doing again, you're crazy. <laughs> then I feel this kind of warm embrace, like a mist on the beach in the morning of a touch of the madness. And I go, ah, and I set off to do it. <laughs> That is great. I love that. So it's all about listening less to people who want to dissuade you and yeah. going bigger. Go big or go home. Go bigger. So a lot of times we had a situation where we were trying to sell an animated movie and we couldn't sell it. And I thought, why can't we sell this one movie? And then I thought, if we can't sell one movie, maybe I could sell 12. And so I put together a slate of movies. And I thought, it's completely counterintuitive. And it worked. So a lot of times the answer is go bigger. This level of movie star is saying no to my movie. I'll go to a slightly lower level of movie star. Then you think, no, go to a bigger one. Yeah, so a lot of times in life, part of what we advocate in that touch of the madness is go bigger. Right. Do the opposite of what you think. This isn't working. Ask for something bigger. Ask. Again, that is one of the most important things. You just never know who's going to say yes. And the downside to someone saying no is so limited. Everybody's worried about being judged today. Who cares? I know. Judging you for what? I know. I mean, and in a sense, we're all judging. I like this kind of food better than that kind of food. Being, judging is not the same as condemning. Who cares? Why even think about what people think about you? The question is, did you reach your goal? And then... It's a lot more fun than whether someone said no to you. It's, it is amazing how 
preoccupied people are with what people think. A, they're probably not thinking about you, and B, they're usually afraid to do what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny time, too, because without being political, there's a lot of people worried they'll say the wrong thing, they'll offend the wrong person, which... Yeah, I I never worried about that. (laughs) Good good for you, because, you know, there's one of the biggest roadblocks to being creative you, you you can't be creative in a world where you're afraid to say something you're afraid to screw it up is. or you're afraid of censorship you just can't and it also does something that people don't even consider like when you are afraid of speaking your mind and saying something funny that might not be funny to everyone or whatever it is it actually dulls your intuition when you're creative you really need to trust that intuition with everything I, I think so, too. One of the things I advocate in the book is sometimes when you ask the question, you're not going to get a, the yes you wanted, but if you're, again, open and in a state of play, you'll find something better. So mm-hmm. a long time ago, I read a book by a, a renowned Zen master named Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, yeah. Who's credited with bringing mindfulness to the West, and I love the book. And so what did I want to do with this peaceful Vietnamese Buddhist monk. I, I use him as inspiration for a character in my action-packed Mortal Kombat movies. <laughs> a stupid idea in hindsight. But I called him <laughs> to see if I could go meet him. And he said, sure. And I went to meet him to, to see if he could be an inspiration for this character. Wow. And after two hours, what happened was I felt like I'd been on vacation for a week. And I looked at him and I said, what's your secret? I feel so great. He said, no secret, practice. And I said, practice? You mean I could learn this? And he goes, yeah. And we became friends. He, I brought him down to L.A. and he spoke to a bunch of movie people because I thought maybe they could infuse his teachings in their movies. Not the way I wanted to for Mortal Kombat, but another way. We became great friends. He asked me to do a documentary on mindfulness, which I did. You did? Um, yeah, it's called oh. Mindfulness, Be Happy Now. It's on Amazon. Okay. It's with Deepak Chopra and, oh. and lots of other people in it. And so I didn't quite get the result I set out for, but I got an amazing result, which is I still practice mindfulness to this day, and it changed my life for the better. And I try and use it again in my movies and in the way I operate, I talk to people, and it's wonderful. So you never know where all this stuff will lead you if you're open-minded to it. It's true. One time I was, some a company had tried to hire me, and I really didn't want the job and because I was really happy where I was. So I just decided to play with them. And I came up with some <laughs> out, <laughs> outrageous salary, this outrageous vacation package, parking, all sorts of bells and whistles. And I was fully expecting they would say no. <laughs> and they were like, sure. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> why did I That's wait so great. long to do that? That was exactly, crazy. Right? So, Perfect. yeah. Good for you. So anyway, how do you incorporate a touch of madness at home? That, I, I mentioned that a little bit. It's not really my place to explain to people how to do that. But because <laughs> um, I know maybe a little bit about creativity professionally, but, but personally. But however, I do talk about it because the mindfulness story is one. Because I met Tegan Han through yeah. what started the work thing. And then I found mindfulness. And I think the way you incorporate a touch of the madness at home is really the same way. It's the same principle. You're saying, what do I want to create? What's the essence of what I want to do? Maybe what you want to create is a a calmer space or Mm -hmm. more time off or a a phone-free night with your partner, whatever you want. You have to then figure out why. You have to ask. Then you have to, I think, do it in a fun kind of way. I think these principles work for anything. They've certainly 
work for me in all kinds of other aspects of my life. So mm-hmm. I think the same thing, create as play and the way we explain it works for anything. But mostly if you boil it down, it's, it's all about two things. First of all, you just, it's about, don't be afraid. Just don't be afraid to, 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 to go bigger, to ask for what you want to try and never, ever give up and let go. Once you set your mind on something, those two things apply to almost anything and it's just a question of we try and come up with a very simple fun way this is not a didactic book we come up with a simple fun way of how to do it but it does it works in your life all the time people always say to me what do you think is your greatest career achievement i say being able to bring my dogs to work my whole life which i think it is because you know apart from anything else i maybe get off the phone with some agent and we're negotiating a little price and all of a sudden my dog walks in with his toy and wants to play and it's adorable and it's hard to get mad so I'm not sure if that's my dog helping my personal life or, I mean, my no, professional life. Or, right? But it, it, there's so many things you can do by simply saying, I want to bring my dog. No, anytime I was worked up about something that I, I had too much on my plate or something, my, my dog would curl up in my lap and just make me sit there and pet her. <laughs> And wow, what an intuitive dog. That's great. I know. Oh, she really is. She's amazing. But that's the kind of thing I feel like they are so helpful in showing us how to be, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 In the mindfulness movie, we, we interviewed Caesar at Milan, the dog whisperer, and he had great things to say about mindfulness and dogs. It's really interesting. What did- he said dogs make us more mindful because of what you just described. Mm-hmm. He said we tend to make them less mindful because it's like, anybody want to play it? Something. Yeah. Just want <laughs> and the other thing I thought it was great that he said, he said, we all say we love dogs, but we act like cats. In other words, we as humans are a little more selfish, a little more independent, a, a little less warm than the dogs we love so much. Right. So he, he really had very interesting things to say about dogs and mindfulness. Yeah, no, it's so true. I, I, that's why I love that analogy about the dogs creating that play. I, and I also think it's important when you're working, too, to take a break for lunch, get sunshine, or go out to lunch with a funny friend, or just get all that stress out of your head and that routine so that you're more creative and effective. You know, it's our mind telling us we can't do things. I work in Santa Monica, which is on the ocean in California. And when I first started working here, I was like, I could go take a walk on the beach during lunch. I, mean, right. I can't do that. But how can we do that? We're like, well, of course you can do that. <laughs> Your mind is, no, I have to slip. And, and once, again, once you start bringing play into these things, right. you realize it has the opposite effect. You're not slacking off. You're actually doing a better job. That's the counterintuitive thing to a right. lot of this. Ask anybody for what you want. Go right. bigger in your ideas. Play more. These things are not just ways to just go screw around and have a great time. They are fun, but they're ways that will make you do better in terms of your creativity and your innovation. Yeah, and everyone wants to work with the person that's having fun. That's the bottom yeah. line. You know? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, you're just gravitated to, towards them. Is there anything else that you could share with our audience that you haven't said yet? If they're interested, the book, A Touch of the Madness, comes out on September 12th, but it's available for pre-order now on Amazon or Apple or anywhere books are sold. Or you could go to atouchofthemadness.com to find out lots more about it and the same thing. So if you're interested, that's where it is. If you do read it, please drop me a note through atouchofthemadness.com and let me know what you think. 
Yeah, great. Thanks so much for all your insight. We wish you the best of luck with this book. I've read it, and it is amazing. It's hysterical. I kept sending little excerpts to my family, and they're all trying to order it now. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks for joining us. We'll just start with a short meditation. Find a comfortable position. And then just take a deep breath in, inhaling all that positive energy, that joyfulness that's all around you, and exhale. Think about that playful nature you were born with, the child that was free of worry, always laughing in constant play, and just Remember those times, the setting, notice the sounds and smells around you. Where are you? Close your eyes, breathe in for five, four, three, two, one. Now long exhale. Just shrug your shoulders, relax, neck side to side. Let your head feel like a bobblehead. <laughs> and your whole body relaxes on command as you inhale. Express gratitude for that playful, hilarious child you are. Exhale. Notice how calm you feel. And imagine ways to incorporate in your life mindfulness and playfulness. So when we're speaking with someone, we're fully engaged and we take time to find the humor in every situation. Breathe in. Now you're Brow softens, eyes are closed, relax your jaw. The neck is going to feel relaxed. You are on the right path. There's no right or wrong path. All paths lead to exactly where you need to be. And a crazy different path is good. All your choices have led you to here. Good or bad, every experience unfolds the path ahead. And just feel good in that direction. Trust that you are guided in the right direction but it'll take longer if we forget to play. Laugh more, smile, connect with everyone. Help people feel good in your presence. Do people smile when they see you? Inhale.
inhale for five. Exhale for seven. Really press the breath out. You're going to let your shoulders and your hips relax. The arms and legs feel loose and heavy. The mind is calm, gentle, knowing that you are on the right path. Just release all the worries. Let them go. They are unimportant. They only hold you back. Release all negative thoughts. Be sure to subscribe to Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Namaste.